Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, if you have a copy of the scriptures, uh, please go to the Gospel of Mark. We're actually giving these away for anyone who would like to have one. This actually is a copy of the Gospel of Mark. So if you're here, you don't have one, you'd like one, just raise your hand. A couple guys are passing them out. I'll certainly be glad to share them with you. So yeah, we're beginning a series of messages on the Gospel of Mark, which is basically just a biography. I shouldn't say basically. There's nothing really basic about it. (laughs) It's a biography of Jesus, his person, his work, uh, who he was, what he came to do. He's probably the most influential person that's ever lived, and, you know, as Christians, we would say is still living. I did a just a little quick search online and I just said is Jesus alive and Google responded with some like well most people say that he is or whatever blah blah blah. I was like oh not bad at least they're you know whatever (laughs) and then I just did is Buddha alive and it just popped up deceased (laughs) and I said well is Muhammad alive and deceased I'm like oh well Jesus is as far as Google's concerned Jesus is a little bit more alive but he's, you know, the most influential person. So much, actually, of our Western world is built, um, whether we recognize it or not, on the teachings and values of Jesus, valuing every individual, uh, loving your neighbor, treating your neighbor well, all that stuff, human rights. And so, you know, when I thought about introducing this uh, series, it's kind of like a mountain range with just beautiful, gorgeous peaks and everything, and trying to figure out how to get it started is like, where do you even start? And so there's certainly going to feel a little bit of that, and certainly whatever um, myself, Pastor Dave, and some others who might uh, preach to you uh, from these passages uh, will just, in a sense, be a tip of the iceberg or a glimpse of who he is. But Mark, by the way, just a couple things about the biography. Um, Mark is a biography that's written how ancient biographies were written. Usually ancient biographies would be written about warriors, famous, you know, powerful generals, um, and usually the people that they conquered, the lands that they conquered, and that type of thing. Um, You know, usually those were in chronological order, pretty like orderly accounts of of what they did, pretty much, you know, if you look at it a little bit darkly, like who they killed. Um, Jesus is going to be presented as a warrior, but he never harms one human being. And so there is this chronological flow of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, Mark follows a pretty chronological order, although not exactly. Other biographies would be written about, like uh, philosophers or teachers, uh, maybe you think Plato. Those biographies are usually organized thematically around the teachings, and so that's kind of how it is with Jesus. When some things are maybe not as chronological, one scene is a little bit different in Mark than it is in Matthew or something like that, it's often because they're organizing their materials thematically around the teachings of Jesus. And so, you know, like most biographies, what this, um, you know, Mark project is all about is about the identity of Jesus. We're going to try to find out who he is and his aims, his purposes, what made him tick. And then most ancient biographies did focus a lot on the death of the person, the subject, uh, because uh, ancients believed, and I think they're right, that how a person dies often tells you what their life was actually about. And Jesus's biography is going to be no different, although as I said, even with the warrior idea, he's going to take this common understanding of biography 
and he's going to flip it on it, not not on its head, but upside down. He's going to he's going to make it transcendent. Normally, if you were to read a, a biography, you aren't always, you know, you pick up a biography of the story, you're not just saying, okay, well, how am I going to surrender my life to this? But when you read Jesus and the subject of that and who he is and what he's accomplished, you start to enter into the story and it calls to you, speaks to you. And so that's what we're hoping for in the Gospel of Mark as we journey through this together. Um, one of the things I wanted to do before, I'm going to read the first eight verses and then pray, but... Before we get to that, I just want another way of introduction, two brief things. One is, I just want to mention a brief word on the reliability of this. So we're going to have a whole talk later on um, about how we got the Gospel of Mark, because if you flip to the end, you're going to see most of your Bible versions are going to say, these verses are not in the earliest manuscripts and all that kind of thing. And that opens up this whole you know, kind of can of worms of like, well, how do we get the Bible and all that kind of thing? So is this reliable? Yes, it's a biography, but is it reliable? And so I'm not going to like prove that case right here. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily provable that way. Our faith is a faith. We believe it. Um, but by the way, so is everyone else's. So anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> up on the screen here, you'll see this chart. This is just to give us a quick glimpse to say, hey, this is reliable enough to go on the journey. Does that make sense? Basically, I'm just trying to get you to say, okay, this is at least plausible. If you're a little bit skeptical, a little bit cynical about this, you're new or you're investigating things, we want to let you know that you're welcome. But we also want to, in a sense, challenge you know, some of the you know, old wives' fa uh, fables about the Bible. The Bible isn't this completely unreliable thing like the telephone, like this person said to that person, this person said to that person, and by the end it's something completely different. That's not what you have here. So you look at the chart here, I'll explain it just briefly. You know, see Homer, Sophocles, Plato, Caesar in the New Testament. Those are all ancient historical realities that, by and large, most society accepts as, yeah, we, we know who Caesar is because of these documents. We know who Plato is because of those documents, and they're trustworthy and reliable. Well, when you do the math on it, you know, how many copies of Homer do we have? We have 643 copies. I've counted them all personally. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. And again, those copies may not be full copies. They might be partial this, partial that, but they're all some of Homer's works. But there's 500 years between when Homer wrote and when the first extant copy exists. That's a long time. That's twice as long as America's been around. And so there's some reliability questions in there, and yet most of us would recognize that, oh, no, that's the, an accurate reflection of Homer. Sophocles, Plato, Caesar, the same thing. So you can kind of go through the chart. You know, Caesar, you know, that biography of Caesar, we have 10 copies of Caesar's biography. And it's a thousand years from the time it was written to that. It's like, well, we still kind of know, we think we know who Julius Caesar is. And then you look at the New Testament, and it's almost like an embarrassment of riches. It's like, which number is not like the rest? 24,000. Okay, now again, that's not full copies of the New Testament like you hold in your hand. That could be the, actually in, in 2018, they just found a new copy of, of Mark. Verses 1, chapter 1, 7 through 9 on one side, and on the back side of it, it's like verses 17 through 19. I think it was a 2018, 2019, they found it. You can look it up. It's called P137, I think. Okay, I didn't think anyone was going to do that. But hey, if you're interested in that, you can look that up. It's in Oxford right now, and you can see that. And so that would be a copy. But you have 24,000 of those, and they're written within 40 to 90 years of the time of the events happened. So I'm just appealing to us to say, this is pretty reliable. It's actually, in a sense, the most reliable historical documentation we have about the, the ancient world. And so if you're here and you're wondering, you know, for me, again, I have a little bit of a skeptical, cynical nature myself, that type of information helps me to say, okay, I'm at least going to be open-minded in this, and I'm going I'm to try to engage and see what this biography of Jesus has to say. 
And then lastly, just by way of introduction, is that, you know, when you read verse 1 of Mark, it says the gospel, the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. I want us to know that as we are looking into this biography, this historical, reliable situation, this is history. Christianity is events. Stuff happened. It got recorded, and people responded. Okay? Christianity is not first and foremost doctrines. Doctrines are essential to Christianity, but a, a, Christianity is not, well, do you believe these ten things or these nine things? Christianity is a person who came into history and did something, did stuff. In fact, that word there for gospel, the Greek word is euangelion, it means good news, it means a good message, was used um, in the Hebrew Old Testament, was translated into Greek. That's what most first century Christians used. Just like you use an English translation of the Hebrew, they used a Greek translation of the Hebrew. Does that make sense? And so when that word euangelion was used, it was used when uh, Israel was fighting a battle against another nation, their enemies, and they won, and a messenger went back with good news and said, hey, we won the battle. And so these are all the blessings that are going to come to your life now. And so that same word is used of Mark. He wants to tell us that this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, won a battle. And there's good news for you. There's blessings for you if you give your allegiance to him. And so Christianity is news. Everyone say news. news. It's good news. So would you take your Bible there with me and stand? I want to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. That's keto. Okay. No <laughs> I was just thinking of various diets. Anyway, sorry. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, I pray for us that we would indeed experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the, the greatest gift that Jesus gives, dying, rising, giving us the Spirit. So maybe some here today, maybe for the first time, to experience the Spirit of Jesus to come in and to cleanse and wash them. And for those that are in Christ and who have received the Spirit, we pray that you would fill us, that his work and his presence would pervade us and empower us more and more to help us become like Jesus. Help us, Lord, we pray, as we listen and hear today, to hear carefully. Help us as we journey through this 
beautiful announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark, we pray in his name. Amen. So basically what I want to do here this, uh, this morning is look at three areas of the Gospel of Mark. I want us to look at the prologue first, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to look at Jesus' mighty deeds. And we're going to go, that basically takes us to the mid to end of chapter 8. And then I want us to look at uh, the last section, which is called the way to Jerusalem. So basically this week and next week we're going to be overviewing the Gospel of Mark. So this week we're basically going to go chapter 1 through chapter 10. And then next week we'll go 11 through 16. And so that's kind of the breakdown. And as we go through here, you'll see why we're breaking things down the way that we are breaking them down. So first, the prologue. This is about Yahweh, Jesus, and the new Exodus. And so Mark, you know, as any good author would, begins his uh, document, his, uh, you know, writing, and he introduces a theme, and then that theme is going to, in a sense, almost like shadow or color the whole rest of the gospel. But because we're not as accustomed to first century biographies, and um, as we'll see in a second, we're not real brushed up on our Isaiah we struggle a little bit to see exactly why Mark does what he does and the choices that he makes. So you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So there it is. So if you want to understand the good news about Jesus, Mark is basically saying right at the very beginning, I'm doing this according to what Isaiah said. And so, you know, again, I don't mean this to be like confrontational. I receive it myself. It's like, I need to know more about Isaiah. What does he mean? What is Isaiah even talking about? Like, I don't get to Isaiah in my Bible reading plan until, like, June. <laughs> so, what we're going to see, though, and what's going to become very important, and in fact, I would encourage you, if you're going to be joining us on this journey through the Gospel of Mark, I would encourage you to regularly, regularly read Isaiah I mean, do the whole thing if you want. I'm not, but specifically 40 through 66 is a lot of where Mark draws his content, and not just his content, but his understanding of who Jesus is, what his aims were, and how a person should respond to Jesus. So, you know, Mark does what any good writer would do in the beginning. He, he tells you where he's going, but he also does what any good writer would do is he confuses you. <laughs> He says that this is written according to Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes Exodus. It's like, what? What? Why? You know, so if you read Exodus 23 20, it's up here on the screen for you. Behold, I send an angel before you. Now, your face is lacking in the, in the ESV version of that. But again, that, that Greek translation of the Hebrew includes that exact rendering. This basically, he's quoting from there. Behold, I send my messenger before your face to guard you on the way. The way is going to become very important in section, the final section of our talk this morning and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And so uh, Mark is saying, hey, this is what Isaiah is talking about, but we'll get to Isaiah in just a second. But first he's like, let me start you in here in Exodus. And he refers to the Exodus event where God delivers his people, rescues them, leads them through the water, leads them on the way, and then brings them to the promised land. They're exiles in Egypt, they go through the wilderness, and they get to Jerusalem. And so he references this in Exodus 23, 20. 
Another reference, and I uh, neglected to uh, put that on the screen, I just realized as well, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. So that's like a sword drill. Malachi is the last book right before, in the Old Testament right before Matthew. Listen to Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So basically what Malachi is doing is he's looking back at the Exodus event. He's quoting Exodus 23 and saying what God did back then, he's going to do again. And so the people of Israel, you know, they were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them and brought them into their promised land. And they had all these kings, but it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. You know, see our uh, rest in the shadow sermons here. They won't preach that again. But they go back into exile. Everyone say exile. exile. With Babylon. And so the nation is wondering, are these promises going to be fulfilled that you know, God promised way back to Abraham and David? Is God going to do that again? And the prophets say, yes, and it's going to be this new kind of exodus that's going to happen. A new rescuing. And then the reason why Mark says Isaiah is because Isaiah is the one who kind of brings this together. When you read Isaiah 40 through 66, that's like the classic passage as the people of God understood. Isaiah was the one who really tied together this new exodus and the former exodus. I mean, you're going to read stuff in, I, in Isaiah 40 through 66 where he makes a way through the waters. Huh, okay. Where he leads his blind servant along the way. Oh, when did he do that? Oh, yeah, he did that back then. He's going to do it again. The Passover lamb is what liberated them. Oh, Isaiah 53 talks about a man who's going to give his life as a ransom for the nation to lead them through. Oh, that sounds familiar. And so all throughout Isaiah, 40 through 66 especially, you're going to see that this new exodus idea comes up. And so there's a, I got a quote here from one of the scholars. I think just kind of ties this together here. I don't want to park it too long. It's like I can see your eyes starting to glaze over already. <laughs> you do need to know. Everyone say Exodus. You do need to know that all of Mark's gospel is shaped by that Exodus event. So this, this theologian, I think, ties it together, and then we'll move on. The original Exodus pattern, deliverance from Egypt, journey through the desert, and arrival at the promised land, is transformed into the hope of a grander Exodus. Deliverance from the exiles, from the power of Babylon and its idols, Yahweh's leading of and provision for his blind people along the way, and his arrival and enthronement in a gloriously restored Zion, or Jerusalem, or the Promised Land. But Isaiah 40, verse 3 is the key. Without Yahweh's presence, there can be no salvation. And so Isaiah 40, in verse 3, just to read that for you, says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So notice, who's coming to enact the Exodus? Someone from the line of David? Mm, yeah, maybe. But who's he say here? He says the Lord. God. The Old Testament name for God, one of the most prominent ones anyway, is Yahweh. We're going to use the word Yahweh because of that throughout this talk. So God shows up. Mark's new exodus, macro structure, sorry, he's a smart guy, just means the, the big structure of Mark, okay? 
presents Jesus delivering Israel from the strong man. So we're going to see that in chapters 1 through 8, how Jesus delivers his people Israel from Satan and sin and all of its effects. It's the wondrous miracles of Jesus in Galilee. That's what we're going to see in a minute. And then he's going to lead his blind followers along the way. That's cross-bearing discipleship. I mean, think about the disciples, how often they get it wrong, okay? He's leading them, yes, but like they're literally, he's on his way to Jerusalem to die and give his life for them, and they're arguing, and Mark specifically says, on the way, about who's going to have the best seat in the kingdom. It's just like, but that's the pattern. Deliverance, leading, teaching, guiding them, giving them sight. Doesn't Jesus do stuff? Oh yeah, he does that. And then finally arriving in Jerusalem. So, the big takeaway that you need to get as you read these biographies of Mark, which I hope you do, you know, go back and read Isaiah 40. One of the things you could do is just go back there, read Isaiah 40 through 66, and every time you see something that might remind you of how God delivered people from Egypt, just note it in your Bible. And if you're saying, I have no idea what that is, then, you know, ask someone, come ask me, and I'll help you read through it. <laughs> so, you do that, and you'll see that that Exodus event is going to color and shape everything that Mark is recording and doing. So that's very important for us to get at the outset. And the last thing in this prologue that we really need to get at the outset is, is this, again, is this idea of Yahweh. Mark introduces Jesus as the Christ, that means the Messiah, the Son of God, and then he says, get ready because Yahweh is coming to town. So what you need to see then, what Mark wants you to see, is that this Jesus figure is the Messiah. He is the son of David, but he's also David's Lord. So that's, you know, if you've got a little biography there, go to chapter 12 and verse 35. Jesus' opponents, they're challenging his authority. They've asked him some questions, and he's, I can't wait to get to that. We've already, you know, we've already done the, planned it out. I think we've got 35 sermons of Mark. Who's in Okay, here we go. All right. <laughs> Which, by the way, uh, so Dave and I and a couple of staff, we spent a number of hours working through the gospel carefully, trying to figure out what fits with what and how many sermons we're going to preach and when we're going to do it and all that kind of stuff, getting all prepared, right? And so the next day I came in, I've been doing all this Isaiah stuff. I, I said to Dave, kind of deadpan, I'm like, well, we can't do Mark. He's like, what? I said, we got to do Isaiah first. <laughs> But this theme of Jesus as Messiah, yes, but Jesus as Yahweh. Jesus himself wants us to be thinking in these categories. Jesus is, in a sense, breaking the categories that we're used to. He's not just a warrior. He's not just a teacher. He's not even just the Messiah. Mark 12, 35, and Jesus taught in the temple, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? He's not just another one in the line of David. David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is recognizing that in Psalm 100, this is actually Psalm 110, that David recognized that there was a Yahweh element to this whole scenario. And so what we want to see then as we go through the Gospel of Mark is we want to see Yahweh in the flesh. And this is so important for you. What you think about God 
will shape, of course, your experience of him, your interactions with other human beings, your family, your friends. It will dramatically shape our church. You know, if we think God is angry, then you get Christians who are. If you think that God is, you know, just a nice, like, heavenly grandpa, just doling out 20s, then you get a certain kind of church. <laughs> What's God like? You try to read in the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 1 says that God spoke to us in many times and in many ways through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. The clearest, most established expression and self-revelation of God is his son, Jesus Christ, Yahweh. Everyone say Yahweh. Yahweh. Amen. And so when we look at Mark now, we're going to go to this you know, the, the wonders of Galilee, where, again, as that, that scholar said, this is where Jesus, in a sense, shows his power over evil and suffering. He's going to bind the strong man, which, by the way, that's referenced in Isaiah 49, you know, where God's actually going to bind the strong man, who in that context was Babylon. He's going to send Persia, his servant Cyrus, Isaiah 49, to bind Babylon so that the people of God Israel can be set free to go back to their land. And now Jesus is going to come, and he's, going to, he's not going to bind Babylon. He's not going to bind Rome. He's not even going to bind Egypt like he did in the past. Now he's going for, in a sense, the big fish. He's going for the devil himself. And so when you read through Mark here now, you know, in the, these mighty deeds in Galilee, you look at chapter 1, and you see Jesus, you know, casting out demons, <laughs> like, left and right. You know, just for whatever reason, this weird illustration it just reminds me of like Oprah. You get a car. You get a car. You get a car. And Jesus is just going through Judea and Galilee saying, be gone. Come out. Be gone. And they're trying to like fast forward the program. We know who you are, Jesus. And he's like, be quiet. Be quiet. It's total mastery and authority over the strong man all over Israel. Who does that? Who binds the strong man? Yahweh does that. Look in chapter 1, and I already read it in verse 8. I love John the Baptist there. John the Baptist says, Someone is coming who is mightier than I. And we might be tempted to think, Well, how mighty was John? Well, here, here's a little bit of a glimpse of it. King Herod at that time had no problem disposing of his enemies. But he wouldn't touch John the Baptist. You know, I'm not going out there in the wilderness. The religious leaders, man, we we're not touching John the Baptist. He was a holy man. He was well-respected. They said, we heard him. Then it's going to be bad on us. So John the Baptist was mighty. Jesus says that John was the greatest prophet who ever lived. And John says, the one who's coming, I can't even put his cleats on. Soccer guy, sorry. <laughs> okay? Why? What's he going to do? going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who does that? Abraham doesn't do that. Moses doesn't do that. David doesn't do that. Daniel doesn't do that. None of those quote-unquote great men of the faith. Deborah, great woman of the faith, she doesn't do that. Nobody does that. Joel chapter 2 says that in the last days when this new exodus is going to happen, 
Yahweh will pour his spirit out on the young men and the old men, the young women and the old women. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. You know who pours out the Holy Spirit? Yahweh. And the word baptism there, by the way, you know, that's not a little bit of this. A little sprinkle, sprinkle. You know, we, you know, we are a Baptist church. <laughs> We're talking about immersion. We're talking about torrential downpour. We're talking about flooding our lives with the presence and power of God. Remember, he's in. Who's coming in to do this? It's Yahweh. And so it's Jesus. That's the, that's got the second person of the Trinity. That's God's Son. And then also coming with him is God's Spirit. God's presence is coming back to Israel and then to the world. Yahweh does that. And so when we read Mark's biography of Jesus, he's trying to like blow our minds, so to speak. Yahweh. Look at chapter 2. And we'll, you know, again, we'll look at these passages in more details in the days ahead. But chapter 2, there's a paralytic that comes to Jesus, brought by his friends. You know, they take the ceiling off, they lower him down. Maybe you're familiar with the story. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And his friends, you know, they're like holding him. They're like, that's not what we came for. <laughs> you know? Jesus wanted to do both. And Jesus' opponents were grumbling, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Their theology is actually, actually very accurate. And Jesus is like, yeah, you got it. <laughs> yep, now you're getting it. That's who I am. Not only can I forgive sins, only God can forgive sins, but where did God forgive sins, by the way? At the temple. So Jesus is saying, I'm Yahweh, and newsflash, new temple in town. Yahweh does that. You know, chapter 3, he's cast out so many demons by chapter 3. The strategy that Jesus' you know, human opponents have come up with is, well, he must be the devil himself. <laughs> that, that was the conclusion they finally arrived at. You know, he can't be from God. We know that. He's so disruptive. He must be the devil himself, which is kind of what uh, the word, you know, scholars debate about what Beelzebul means, but it probably means prince of demons, as he says here. And Jesus said, that's just foolish. Why would Satan be, you know, shoot, you know, basically shoot himself in the foot? If a kingdom divide itself is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And then Jesus says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. And that is a not-so-subtle reference that Jesus is saying, I'm the strong man. Beelzebul has been bound, and now I'm plundering his house. And the plunder is you and me. We've been set free. That's what the Exodus is all about, being set free. Yahweh does that. You go a little bit further. Chapter 4. No, yeah, end of chapter 4. Jesus calms the storm. Remember that? Storm's raging. Remember, these are masterful fishermen. They know how to handle a storm, but man, they're not handling this one. They're scared. They wake him up, Master, we're going to die. You know, he's just like, oh man, peace be still. Whew. Get the day started right. You know what I'm saying? Whew. Just masters the waters. Who does that? Who's the one in the Old Testament that masters the waters? Psalm 78 is going to tell you it's Yahweh. But you go to the Exodus event, that's where I think the picture is of God kind of stepping in the Red Sea and the water's heaping up on the side so they can walk through. 
That's what Jesus is doing. He's mastering the sea. And then interestingly, chapter 5, right after that, Jesus goes into this region and there's this guy possessed of many demons called Legion, right? And he casts them out and puts them in the swine. And then where do the swine go? They're drowned in the what? Sea. So when Jesus mastered, or when the Old Testament got Yahweh mastered the waters, the enemy and the opponents, they tried to go through and they drowned in the what? Sea. Legion there represents the enemies of God. He puts those demons in those pigs and drowns them just like Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea in the Exodus. Come on. Exodus, liberation, freedom. This is what Jesus came to do. This is your God. This is Yahweh. And so, you know, feeding, feeding people with miraculous bread in desolate places in the wilderness, ringing any bells? Yes. So by the time you get done with Galilee, flip with, you know, to, to chapter 8. And scholars debate, does it, the first section end at 22 or 27? Where is it going to kind of start? It's a little bit of a hinge passage there. It doesn't matter that much. But he finishes this miraculous deeds in Galilee section as a good biography would, trying to figure out who is this guy. Well, he's Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, Yahweh come in the flesh. Verse 27, chapter 8. And Jesus went on his way, uh, went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, I'm going to talk about that in just a second, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, another say Elijah, another say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered them, you are the Christ. And Luke and Matthew's version says, the son of the living God. And he strictly charged no one, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And so, brothers and sisters and friends, Mark wants to show us our God who he is, and what he can do. And he wants to set his people free. Now, the way that that's going to happen, though, we learn, quote-unquote, on the way. We saw that in the prologue. The, the word way happens a couple of times there. We saw, in the, in, when you go back to the Exodus account, that God led his people along the way. Isaiah says that as well, that he led them on a way that they did not know. And so this idea of the way becomes prominent. In fact, if you're familiar with early Christianity, it wasn't called Christianity until much later. It was called the way. They followed the Jesus way. And so once the disciples kind of, and I say kind of in quotes, because they don't really get that he's Yahweh Messiah. I mean, they're still going to really flub it up, which I'm like, I was so grateful. I'm like, okay, Lord, they were still messing it up, and I'm still struggling too, but okay, you're still leading me. Praise God. This phrase, the way, is used many times between 827 and the end of chapter 10, actually beginning of chapter 11. So if you, know, you want to take notes, you want to come see me afterwards. 827, just read it. 933, 1017, 1032, 1046, and 52, 118. The way, the way, the way, the way. And so here's who I am. I'm this great king, warrior, teacher, Yahweh in the flesh. And I've come to restore and redeem and set you free. And here's how I'm going to do it. <laughs> and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Everyone say suffer. 
I can't, you know, it's amazing. Jesus has all that power. He never uses that power for himself. And actually, he surrenders that power to the point of suffering. Son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this, say that next word, plainly. plainly. Jesus can be accused sometimes of, of, you know, saying things that are a little, like, hard to interpret. Like, what did he mean by that? Give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. That's a tough one. But this, with his disciples on the way, he's like, I want to be crystal clear, everybody. This is what's going to happen. And when you read the way section here, which is like, again, 822 to, you know, the end of chapter 10, he's going to explicitly say this plainly to them three times. You know, this feels like a real parenting moment for me. I have told you this very clearly three times. Do you get it? Yes. No, you didn't. You know what I'm saying? He's leading a blind servant along the way, is what Isaiah said. Incredible. So what are we going to learn on the way? Let me just give you a little teaser for it. Here's what we learn on the way. Well, as we just read, you learn about the identity of Jesus. On the way to Jerusalem, on the way to establish the kingdom, on the way to establish the kingdom through suffering, he teaches them who he is. So if you engage with Jesus by faith, you go on this journey, your life journey with Jesus, he is going to teach you over and over and over again who he is and how sufficient and satisfying he really is. He's Yahweh in the flesh. No one can be better. And 933. <laughs> Actually, go to 933. This is funny. A little bit of gospel humor here. And they came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. He asked them, hey, what were you discussing on the way? See that phrase again? <laughs> but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> so he kind of knew. Hey, what were you guys chatting about? Nothing. You know, just nothing. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. On the way with Jesus, you're going to learn that true greatness, true leadership is serving and loving other people. Anything else, and you're not on the way with Jesus. Christians and churches who are self-assertive and proud, that is not the Jesus way. That's the way of the kingdoms of the world. That's the way of Pharaoh. That's the way of Babylon. That's the way of the devil. The Jesus way is different. It's no accident. You know, I was preparing for this marriage course that we're going to do on the ministry nights, and I was looking where Jesus talked about um, marriage, and it's in this section on the way. And at first I was like, why is he bringing it up now? And then the Holy Spirit just revealed like... You know the best place to learn about marriage? It's with Jesus on the way to the cross. Because marriage is about laying down your rights for the benefit of your spouse. You learn really what marriage is on the way. The rich young ruler is on the way. What must I do to inherit eternal life? On the way with Jesus, you get eternal life. But the rich young ruler thought being on the way was about keeping the commandments. I kept the commandments. I did this. I did that. I did this. 
And Jesus says, but one thing you lack, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and follow me and you will have riches in the kingdom of heaven. And he walked away, even though it says Jesus loved him. Which I love that Jesus loved him even though he walked away. It's incredible. That's our God. He loves the people even who reject him. At least we don't know what happened to that guy. Maybe he came back later. But you learn on the way, progressively on the way with Jesus, you are going to be taught that the most supreme and valuable thing is Jesus himself. And he will keep teaching you that lesson until we really get it, because then you will actually be happiest and most at peace. That's Jesus on the way. But by far, my favorite episode on the way is Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus right at the end of the way section. Jesus, as a, you know, he's on the way. And you, there's, a, there's a little bit of a cadence to it in Mark. He, Mark is the shortest, quickest gospel. So we're doing it in 35 sermons. If we preach Matthew or Luke, I promise we'll do more. Just so that we can keep the ratio right. Anyway. I don't know if that's like a great promise. But yeah, no, anyways. But you definitely get the idea that there's a deliberateness to what Jesus is doing on the way. And as he passes by, Bartimaeus hears, and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me! And Jesus is maybe too far away to hear, doesn't immediately respond. And the people around Bartimaeus are just like, shh. He's on the way. He's going somewhere. And when he heard that, he's just like, oh yeah, really? And he really, Son of David, have mercy on me! Jesus is made aware. And you read Mark, it just says, and Jesus stopped. That's like the most beautiful stop ever. He stops. And Bartimaeus is called. And when Bartimaeus is called, he throws off his cloak. Unlike the rich young ruler who had so many possessions, to leave everything he had and follow Jesus was hard. That's why for those of us who have wealth and riches, to follow Jesus is hard. But if all you got is a coat, <laughs> I'm going with Jesus. And Jesus gives him sight. And then Jesus tells him, go your way. Interesting word choice, right? And it says Bartimaeus immediately followed him on the way. Bartimaeus said, once you've met Jesus like that, there's no more following your own way. I'm going the way of Jesus even if it's through Jerusalem, to the suffering, because in the end there's vindication and resurrection. And so like any good biography, Jesus estab or Mark establishes Jesus' identity in the first part, and then in this second section on the way, we learn what Jesus' aims and purposes are, and he says it very plainly at the end of Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man, who, by the way, shares Yahweh's throne in Daniel 7, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is our God. Isn't that good? If you don't know Jesus, I would just say, cry out to him, call to him. He's the greatest. He'll forgive your sins. He'll set you free. He'll give you eternal life. If you do know him and you're on the way, 
that contrast between the rich young ruler and Bartimaeus couldn't be any more stark. Let go of the idols and the things that cling so closely to your heart and join Jesus more deeply on the way. One of my... Well, two things. One, 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 um, one concession and one admonition to finish. The admonition is this. If you've been around Jesus in the Gospels before, the temptation is to see Jesus as you've always seen him and to assume that he kind of looks like you. Yeah. That is not why these Gospels were written. What we're hoping and praying is that when we see Jesus, we'll see him for who he really is, and we'll be changed into his image. If he came not to be served, but to serve, then it's our desire, not that you would know academically who Jesus is, but that people in this church would start serving one another more than they already are. The way would go deeper. Husbands and wives would joyfully want to serve one another. When you go to work, you would embrace the Jesus way and you would serve. Even when they don't say thank you. Did that happen to Jesus on the way? The ratio is about 10%. <laughs> Just to set your expectations. Healed 10 lepers, one came back. So hey, praise God. <laughs> he didn't unheal the other nine. Wouldn't that be something? What if that was Jesus? Like, hey, didn't say thanks. That's maybe not so good parenting either. But anyway, uh, And so, you know, we don't, we don't want to, like, dig deep into the well to find out who Jesus is, and we look down at the bottom of the pool, and we see, oh, he's just like I thought he was. He looks just like me. No. Let the person of Jesus make you new, renew you. And then secondly, I would just say, Jesus is far, far greater than we can even come close to really exploring in this sermon series. I just want that to be said so many times. I mean, Jesus has been king for thousands of years. He's the ruler right now, here. He's sovereign over what's happening all over the world. He's head of the church in every nation, wherever the church is. He's massive. You know, one of my favorite preachers, S.M. Lockridge, a couple people, that's my king. Okay, that, that's S.M. Lockridge, okay? Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. That's his name. Got a little three-minute clip. Google, that's my king, S.M. Lockridge. Don't watch the video, just listen to the preaching. It's probably the best preaching in the English language, in my opinion. And he starts off by just explaining all these amazing ways about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And one of the lines in there he says is that, the heavens of heaven cannot contain him. So let's just get that straight. The heavens of heaven cannot contain Jesus, Yahweh Messiah, King, Son of God, Lamb of God, Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. So brothers and sisters, we serve an amazing king. And I invite you to seek his face to open up your heart and ask him to come and renew and make you new again and again as we learn of Jesus on the way. Father.
Thank you for this time in the word. Bless your word, I pray. Amen.